The KXAN News Podcast is sponsored by Shelf Genie. Tears and emotion at the Capitol as parents of school shooting victims plead for lawmakers to take action. Please hear me out and don't let my daughter's murder mean nothing to you. Why the powerful testimony happened while many Texans were sleeping and what's next for the gun safety bills. There are always differences in the priorities of the Senate and the House for the budget. There's also great alignment. From school choice to the budget, he's on the front line. We go one-on-one with the senator who's leading the charge on key top priorities for Texas conservatives. A caregiving crisis. Why families and advocates of Texans with disabilities are vying for attention at the Capitol as time runs short in the session. Produced from the Capitol in Austin and airing statewide, this is the award-winning State of Texas. Hello and thank you for joining us. I'm Josh Hinkle. Tears and powerful pleas for action marked an emotional hearing that stretched into the early morning hours Wednesday at the state capitol. Families of victims of school shootings in Uvalde and Santa Fe waited more than 12 hours to have their say on gun safety bills in front of a Texas House committee. When they finally got the chance to testify, they sent a strong message to lawmakers. I don't want you to see what I saw. I saw my nine-year-old daughter draped in a white sheet cold and alone in an operating room. I saw the wound that took her life. I don't want any of y'all to see that. We need to change these laws. The bill in question would ban the sale of semi-automatic rifles like the one used in the Uvalde shooting to someone under the age of 21. Capitol reporter Monica Madden covered that hearing. This may have been one of the most emotional testimonies we've seen this session. What was it like to be in that room? You couldn't just help but feel heavy listening to these parents talk about their children who are no longer here with us. Javier Caceres, who we just heard from, he lost his daughter, Jackie, and was talking about little things like how she'll never be able to learn how to ride a bike or graduate high school or even fall in love. So really just a heartbreaking reality for these families as um, they were going over their stories and what they want from lawmakers. And they were making one main plea for lawmakers on a bill that they think would make a meaningful difference in the future. I don't want you to have to identify your child's body based on what he was wearing to school that day. I don't want any more children to hide under their desks in fear. I don't want any more teachers to worry about how they're going to protect several students at once when they're just one person. So I don't come to you as a Democrat or Republican I just come to you as a mom, as a parent. Enough is enough. Please do something. Do something now. Don't wait until another community has to go through this. So I leave you with one thing. Tess didn't have a choice in life or death. But you as leaders have a choice of what my daughter's life will be remembered for. Will she die in vain? Or will her life have saved another child? Maybe your child. 18 to 21 isn't much to ask. As a grieving mother, I'm begging you to please hear me out and don't let my daughter's murder mean nothing to you. 
So as you could hear, Josh, just absolutely gut-wrenching testimony. There were not many dry eyes in that hearing room. And oftentimes we heard really graphic details about how the parents had to identify their children that day. But again, you know, this is their reality, as agonizing it is, as it is. And they were hoping that that testimony would make it through to lawmakers who at some point weren't even making eye contact with these families as they were testifying before the committee. It was after 10 at night before parents had a chance to testify. And the committees faced some criticism for such a late night of testimony on such an emotional topic. What have you heard about that since the hearing? Well, we're hearing from several of our Texas congressional delegates who went on social media to criticize this process and how it played out. Congressman Lloyd Doggett, Congressman Joaquin Castro, and Congresswoman Jasmine Crockett all tweeting that they were disappointed in the way this played out and they thought it was unfair to these families. And just to give you some perspective on the legislative side of things, the committee did gavel in at 9 a.m. and then they took a break to go to the House floor for debate on bills. That's really typical. Um, but the bill they were debating it was unrelated it ended up being a six hour floor debate because Democrats were trying to kill it and there were all these amendments added so uh, all this time though the families were in the hallways just asking me to even if I knew when it would wrap up and it just was um, a long process and it was emotionally and physically exhausting for those families committee started back up around 7:30 and didn't finish until nearly 4 a.m. so what's happening next with these bills are they done well, at least for the age limit bill, it was left pending, which means there is still some slight chance that it could end up making it to the floor. Uh, the committee deadline for a bill to get out of committee is on May 8th, and there are some kind of loopholes if that does not happen. But overall, Josh, as we know from previous sessions, when a bill does not make it through this late in the session, it's really difficult to push that through to the final finish line when you have so many other bills going on, and especially with when it comes to gun reform and how Republicans have said they feel about it in the past. Speaker Phelan told me this one, just the age limit, does not have the votes. All right, Monica, thank you very much. Thanks for having me. All of these big issues that we have as priorities for the session, education freedom should also be one. Education, diversity, and the budget. We sit down with a senator on the front line of the fight to push Republican priorities through the Capitol. A renewed effort underway to boost pay for caregivers of some of Texas' most vulnerable. Without those frontline workers there to take care of them, I mean, you can't, you can't provide a home. We investigate the need and how people most affected are working to get help from Texas lawmakers. There's a caregiving crisis in Texas, according to families and advocates for people with intellectual and developmental disabilities. They're asking lawmakers to increase funding for certain long-term care services, specifically to help pay staff. As investigator Avery Travis reports, this session, they feel like the legislature is listening. Texas has several programs funded by Medicaid, but also state dollars that allow for different types of living arrangements and care and allow people to stay in their homes or in the community. Demand for these programs is high with a notoriously long wait list. But even still, families and advocates say the programs have historically been underfunded. 
We knew at three months old that Todd was um, going to need 24-7 uh, supervision for the rest of his life. A cancerous tumor and a stroke as a baby left Glenn Bradley's son Todd with brain damage, vision loss, and some issues with fine motor skills. You have to start preparing and making plans for what that's going to look like when they're older. Now an adult, Todd lives in a group home in the Dallas area with a few other men and receives what are called home and community-based services. It's in some cases having to help feed. It's having to help bathe. Bradley says it's allowed Todd to find independence, but in the last few years they've noticed staff turnover and even a shortage of caregivers for his home. He developed relationships with his, his, his uh, caretakers and then they're gone. The base wage for caregivers funded by the legislature has only increased from $7.84 to $8.11 an hour since 2015. This session, lawmakers are considering the most significant increase in years, funding a base wage of $11 an hour. So we're all fighting over the same workers. Denise Gassmeyer's company, Champion Services, runs the group home where Todd lives. For almost 20 years. She says all of her revenue comes through the state program. So when she increased pay at her locations to $12 an hour, that had to come out of money for other services and operating expenses. Without an increase in legislative funding, she believes it'll be tough to stay in business. 33% of all my shifts are open. I don't have staff to fill them. It's a trend across the state, according to the Providers Alliance for Community Services. That means at any given time, one out of three homes doesn't have regular staff on site, meaning the staff that are there that have maybe already worked 12 hours, 18 hours, they can't leave. There's no one there to, to relieve them. Executive Director Sandy Frizzell-Batten acknowledges that puts caregivers and clients at risk of mistakes. They want to see an average pay of $15 an hour for all caregivers. They are a part of humanity. For Gassmeyer, it's personal. Her son also needs this kind of care. It's why she started Champion and why both she and Bradley testified at the Capitol for a rate increase. His way of life and uh, is really being threatened at this point because without those frontline workers there to take care of them, I mean, you can't, you can't provide a home. Right now, the House version of the budget does provide enough funding for that $15 an hour average wage that PaxTex is asking for. The Senate version of the budget looks a little different. It actually has what's called a floor or a base wage of $11 an hour for these kinds of staff and caregivers. We know we've heard from lawmakers all session long saying that there are lots of competing interests for the budget surplus that the legislature has this year, so they want to be smart about how they're doling out money so that it's sustainable. The budget is still going through the legislative process, so we'll be sure to follow it. For State of Texas, I'm Avery Travis. A battle over diversity programs on college campuses. When you have compelled speech, you do not have free speech. We sit down with a senator who's leading the fight, why he believes Texas needs to shut these programs down. Momentum at the Capitol to limit local control. How new legislation could roll back rules to protect workers. This KXAN News Podcast is brought to you by Shelf Genie. I'm Rosie Newberry from KXAN Studio 512. Considering replacing your kitchen cabinets? Struggling to find or reach things? Go to shelfgenie.com slash Austin. Shelf Genie designs custom pull-out shelves for your existing cabinets, adding convenience and value to the most used room in your home. Shelf Genie custom pull-out shelves, everything in reach. Texas senators voted along party lines to restrict diversity efforts at public universities. The legislation would ban diversity, equity, and inclusion programs, also known as DEI. 
Opponents believe it will stop progress to make Texas campuses more inclusive and representative of the population, but supporters say the bill will level the playing field for anyone by focusing on qualifications rather than race. Monica Madden looks closer at the debate. On a very sad situation. Nelson Linder of the NAACP says even 20 years ago, you wouldn't find very many faculty on college campuses who look like him. That's the most impressive thing we've seen is more access, more representation. He attributes that largely to diversity, equity, and inclusion offices on campuses, which have become the norm nationwide. It enhances your education experience. People learn from folks who are different. It just makes the environment more rich, more diverse, more ambitious. It's a net gain. There's nothing negative about this, this kind of, these kind of programs. We reached out to several major Texas universities, which said they won't comment on pending legislation. But UT Austin, for example, touts having students from 123 countries and all 50 states on a website page about DEI policies. All of our goal for true diversity. That Republicans disagree that the credit belongs to DEI programs. Minority college admissions across our state have failed to reach goals. And again, the Baylor study showed that in 2018 to 2020, having a DEI office was not only ineffective increasing the number of minority hires within the faculty, but they declined. All of your colleagues that are, are Ethnic minorities in this chamber are saying the same thing to you. It's wrong, but you're not listening. We're joined now by Senator Brandon Creighton, the author of the anti-DEI legislation. Senator, thank you for joining us on your first time in studio here. It's my first time here. Good, good to be with you. Happy to have you. Now, Senator, the debate in the bill got heated at times. We just heard from Senator West who said he didn't feel as though you and your other Republican colleagues were listening to persons of color in the legislature and their concerns on this issue. How are you addressing that? Yeah, we, you know, I have great respect for Senator West. We had a long seven-hour debate uh, on the Senate floor uh, for the diversity, equity, and inclusion legislation. Uh, personally, I feel like the, the committee process was very thorough, right? Senator West was in the subcommittee on higher education to vet the legislation. He was also in the larger, um, at-large Senate Education Committee when the legislation came through. Was very active in the committee with the witnesses. Uh, many, many conversations related to the bill. Why do you think that eliminating these programs is the best path forward towards a more inclusive environment on college campuses? Well, the, the case uh, I presented in hearings and also through so many hours of debate on the Senate floor, it clearly showed, just irrefutably showed, that DEI is not working for minority faculty recruitment. Over the last 10 years, uh, there have just been dismal results. The DEI units and programs have been somewhat weaponized with these loyalty oaths or required diversity statements that has a chilling effect on uh, those that, that feel comfortable applying in general, uh, maybe that, that don't agree with the political uh, ideology that's exhibited through those required oaths. Uh, that's the same thing that we're seeing in California. We're seeing it among Texas universities. That is compelled speech, right? When you have compelled speech, you do not have free speech. And if you don't have free speech, you have exclusivity. And if you're being exclusive, DEI falls. 
Senator, you've also been leading the front carrying a bill on a priority of both the lieutenant governor and the governor. That is the education savings account, which for our viewers who might not be familiar, that is, you know, public, allocating public dollars to families who want to send their children to private school. Um, you know, talk a little bit about some of the, how you've been addressing some of the concerns from your colleagues from rural um, rural districts. Rural Republicans have said that they are concerned about this because they some of them don't even have private schools in their area. So so how are we making sure that this is um, applicable to anyone? You know, uh, for uh, school choice and parental uh, education freedom, uh, all the things wrapped up in Senate Bill 8, the parental rights that are just paramount for our moms and dads across the state to make the decisions that are best for their children's education, I stand for that. And so I, I think uh, knowing that we would be the 31st state in the nation uh, to advance a major school choice program. We'd be the, the ninth or tenth state with an education savings account. They, they really haven't from Arizona in its uh, fourth iteration over 30 years, Florida in its third iteration over 20 years. We really haven't seen a lot of use of the ESAs in rural areas. But what I would say to our friends uh, that represent rural areas, and I'm one of them, right? I would say that um, if those um, alternative private schools as opportunities or choices are not available, then the ESA is not really an issue uh, in the first place because kids are going to stay in those private schools and not seek them. Now, pivoting to another topic that's important, this week the House and Senate named its members of the conference committee to hash out the differences right. of the budget. You're one of those five senators. Talk about some of the challenges that lie ahead in those negotiations. Yeah, I'm excited that Lieutenant Governor Patrick asked me to serve as a budget conferee. Uh, as you mentioned, those are the final negotiators between the Senate and the House to reconcile those two budgets and their differences. So we've got some major work to do. Uh, there are always differences in the priorities of the Senate and the House for the budget. There's also great alignment. So we've got some incredible opportunities to land the plane for historic support for public schools, for our teachers, uh, for our retired teachers and cost of living adjustments and a 13th check uh, uh, combined. That's really incredible. Um, we've got to show our teachers that when they enter the profession that we've got a destination for them when they leave the profession later on after their career is over. And we're addressing both. School safety is an incredible opportunity. We'll, we'll have between 600 million and a billion three invested in school safety and we have a lot of incredible initiatives there. One area where there isn't alignment yeah. is the differences between the House and Senate proposals on property taxes. We've mm -hmm. heard the Lieutenant Governor say he doesn't want to negotiate with bad math. So how specifically are you and your members in the House going to iron out those details? Yeah, I think uh, property tax uh, overall, if we're negotiating on how to lower property taxes for everyday Texans and businesses, I think we're all winning, right? So the House and the Senate have different plans, but that's what the budget conferees are for, is to work out the details on how to reconcile and blend the best aspects of both plans, and I believe we'll do it. All right, Senator Creighton, thanks so much for joining us on okay. State of Texas. Lawmakers push for power to stop local policies in some of the state's largest cities. How new bills moving through the legislature could let people at the Capitol remove rules approved in your community.
The Texas Capitol is at odds with the capital of Texas and other large cities in the state again. This time the House passed legislation that would preempt some city ordinances reserving broad regulatory powers for the state. Top Republicans pitch it as a way to make doing business easier across the state, but those who represent cities say the bill pushes the boundary of the legislature's own limits. Capitol correspondent Ryan Chandler breaks it down. It's the Capitol. Cities have begun to abuse their local powers. Versus the Capitol. We should have the authority to create laws. The Texas Regulatory Consistency Act takes aim at city's power to regulate broad areas of law, from labor to property and natural resources, reserving that power to the state. We want those small business owners creating new jobs and providing for their families, not trying to navigate a Byzantine array of local regulations that twist and turn every time they cross city limit sign. Business groups say the bill will make life easier for small business owners. Say they're based in Round Rock. They're a plumbing company. They go into Round Rock. Cedar Park, Leander, Liberty Hill, Austin, Buda, Kyle. I mean, the compliance nightmare is, is just unimaginable. Just blocks from the Capitol, city leaders say those who govern closest govern best. So, and just because certain state lawmakers don't agree with it doesn't mean that they should be able to impose their values on somebody 500 miles away. The city of Austin worries local protections, like the Fair Chance Hiring Initiative, are at risk. We as a community have decided that we think it's important for individuals to have the best opportunity to gain employment if they have a criminal history. And that's something that the state is trying to take away. There'll be 92 hours and 55 days. HB 2127 is passed in engrossment. And as the bill heads to the Senate with the support of the governor, Austin is already bracing to defer to those standards. Ryan Chandler, State of Texas. If passed, Representative Burroughs said the bill would eliminate things like ordinances that require mandatory paid sick time and city rules that limit the use of criminal background checks by private employers. You can find more about the legislation online now and the reaction from opponents. Just look for the links in this story in the Texas politics section of our website. Thank you again for joining us for State of Texas. I'm Josh Hinkle. We'll be back next week to bring you an in-depth look at Texas politics.